Today is the 8th of November, 2014, and this is episode 160. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to this special episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. A few months ago, I did a show with my good friend Chris Ellis, and we talked a bit about the philosophy of currency. And we got a a very good response to that show, some great feedback. And so I wanted to repeat that experience, bring back to the show Chris Ellis, Chris Ellis of uh, Feathercoin and also World Crypto Network, and also the Bitcoin Group, and many other uh, (laughs) activities and experiences and contributions to this community. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me back. What I wanted to talk about today, and I think is also a topic that is near and dear to your heart, is identity, which is a topic that has been coming up again and again, especially in relation to Bitcoin 2.0 platforms. We're seeing a number of companies trying to build identity systems. And I believe you also suggested a platform for passports, global passports. Right. Initially, it was a learning exercise. It was just, I wonder if I can build a set of instructions or a protocol that anyone could use. And I did not expect the kind of attention that it has received. I didn't solicit any journalistic interviews. I was contacted by Robert at Wired magazine quite out of the blue. And so this has all kind of taken over me a a little bit and I wasn't expecting it. But it's fantastic that I've touched on a bit of a nerve and that this, this is resonating with a lot of people because we are lots of things to lots of different people in our lives. I'm a different person to my family than I am to my work colleagues. I'm a very different personality when I'm on the internet than when I am face to face with somebody. I did actually write a blog post about this some time ago, Digital Identities Calling in the Tab, something like that, which is this idea that the field of stylometry is fast gaining pace. And that is a field that uses pattern matching and style detection in one's art. So it could be your writing, your photography style, the way your, your mannerisms when you speak as a way of consolidating any of your prior work. And people that perhaps thought that they were anonymous or pseudo-anonymous in the past, maybe back in the 90s when we were all on IRC, may be in for a rude awakening. And this is because everything we do when we're with others is witnessed. And this is what I call the witness principle. The witness principle is that once witnessed, we lose control of what has been witnessed. So if I do something in view of others, I now should no longer expect for that information to be private forever. It's a function of time. There is no idea about privacy in the future because it hasn't been witnessed yet. So then it comes down to trust. I'm now dependent on those other parties to manage an agreement about how quickly we release this information. Now, actually, I thought more interesting than the World Citizenship Project was the Mueller investigation I was doing, which was where I was finding evidence on the internet uh, about Moolah Io, which has recently filed for bankruptcy and there's a lot of controversy around it, money going missing, allegations flying. I used a Git repository. Git is actually a distributed version tracking software. However, there's also a website called GitHub, which then 
sort of pseudo centralized that, that model and then created a social network around it. So I, what I did is I set up a Git repo on my computer and anything that goes into a Git repo folder, every time you hit a, a command called Git commit or Git add and then Git commit, um, what happens is it adds all the changes to that folder since you did a previous commit. And what it also does is it creates uh, cryptographic digests. Those are mathematical reductions on a state of a file on a byte by byte level, such that it produces a long string of random, well, not random, but uh, a deterministic, actually, set of numbers and letters, which uniquely identify that file such that if you were to change one byte in that file structure, the whole string would change, the whole digest would change. And that's called the avalanche effect. What that means is that as I'm doing the investigation, what the Git repository is doing is it's witnessing me witnessing events. So the Git repository is not making any claims as to the truth or falsity of the destination evidence. It's basically witnessing me as an investigator. And then what I'm doing is I'm putting those Git commits into the Bitcoin blockchain while I've been experimenting. Actually, I've been using a coin called Viacoin and also I'm about to experiment with Namecoin as well because I don't want to bloat up the Bitcoin blockchain necessarily. Then what I can do is I can form my own what's known as a Merkle tree whereby I can now prove the evidence handling. So if I try to tamper with the evidence halfway through the investigation, because I've already been committing all of these digests, which remember are uniquely identifiable to the files that they describe, it will reveal itself in the final judgment, right? When, when it comes out in court, when you, when you have the theatre and you present the evidence, I can prove that this sequence of activities happened at least to me as an individual witness. Now, the long-term idea of this was that everyone would then be able to go independently recording their witnessing, that you would be able to bring all these witnesses together at the end. And whatever you found as a kind of an overlap, we must, I think, consider to have a truth condition that is much stronger than if, say, for example, just a minority report produced something. So it was really just a learning exercise. I was very interested in who we become when other people look the other way, how we can describe objectivity using a lot of these tools. And so it was really just a sandpit. And, and most importantly, I just want to add this final point. I am absolutely desperately trying to help everyone at the moment understand this technology who doesn't have any prior knowledge of code. And the way I'm doing that at the minute is just using available tools, as I, is my phrase, available cryptographic open source tools that anyone as long as they know how to use a computer, can just go off and download PGP's GPG tools for Mac and they can open a text editor and, you know, and I can show them how to use the terminal. If that is your basis, now you're giving people control. Instead of just wrapping up all these tools in, in fancy user interfaces, we actually give people control and understanding of the tools. The tools don't control them. So this is an aspect of identity that is revealed through observation by a third-party witness, which brings up an interesting point. Is identity the collection of actions of a person as witnessed by third parties? Or is identity something intrinsic, something that is that person? Now, of course, the word identity says it's the latter. But we don't have any way of measuring that. The only aspect of identity that we see, other than internally, is what is externally manifested by a person through their actions, through their words, 
through the digital artifacts they leave in the world, which uh, is a rather interesting idea because you now have a way of capturing, storing, timestamping, fingerprinting, cataloging, and witnessing in an irrevocable, unchangeable timestamp database all of the external actions and artifacts of any individual. So in the last decade, all of us who have been online have been leaving this record behind, in many cases without really realizing we're doing that. And this record now has become a library, if you like, continuous witnessing of our actions. Is that our identity, though? The word identity just comes from the word identical. It just means the same as. And remember that the past allows for futures to emerge because we have to go to the past to get to the future. Um, so when we remember something or we store something, I mean, in our own minds, of course, it's volatile memory. It's memory that will change as each time we recall them. What technology does, techne, it's a witness in its own right. It's an objective witness. It does not have the capacity to care. That means it can't care and it can't not care either. It just is. So it will just record things and it will just recount them. What this does once you've recorded something is it presents a future opportunity for recall. So you are literally walking into time. By recording, you are creating almost, I don't know, a cave or I don't know what the best metaphor would be, but you are creating a corridor through which you are leaving an opportunity to go down later on, should you choose to. And another, I think I just want to add this, which is that we all have the same number of hours in the day. And that is a great equalizing force. When we do walk into this future where everything is persisted forever somewhere else, either on the blockchain or on some centralized server, it will be interesting to see what people care about. What do people spend their time doing, given that we have so much at our disposal to call on, whether it's old Facebook entries or whether it's old transactions in the blockchain investigating possible criminal behavior, all this kind of thing. In, in my mind, there's one fundamental difference between the social construct of identity and its cousin, if you like, which is reputation, and the techno-construct of identity and reputation. The difference is rather significant. What we're talking about now with witnessing and digital timestamping, and also with many Bitcoin 2.0 technologies that are exploring identity and reputation metrics and systems of recording, this techno-identity is quite distinct from the cultural and social construct of identity as it has existed until now. What's the important difference? In the social construct, memory is imperfect. And memory being imperfect is not a bug, it's a feature. It's actually, in my opinion, a fundamental component of the social construct of identity because we have the ability to forget. Mm. We don't even have that ability. We have no ability to not forget. The ability to forget makes the reputation and identity of individuals, because they are not always witnessed and because that witnessing is transient and will be forgotten, it actually opens the door for person's identity and reputation to be mutable, to be able to change in the future. Another way of thinking of forgetting is as forgiveness. 
the social construct of identity allows for forgiveness. It allows people to redeem, change, and be forgiven by society, primarily through the process of forgetting. Now, there are some things that cannot be forgotten. There are some transgressions and actions that leave an indelible mark on society and as such are not forgotten. And at that point, that identity becomes much harder to change and in many, in many cases impossible to change. So there are limits to forgetting and forgiving within a society. But with the technological construct of identity, we erase that completely. Uh, so now it's not just genocidal maniacs who have no opportunity to have society forget and forgive. It's no longer huge transgressions against society that are not forgotten. Nothing is forgotten. What you had for lunch, what you wrote in 140 characters three years ago on mm. Twitter, on a whim, while stopped at a traffic light, all of that is now part of a permanent and immutable record. And what it does, in my opinion, is it creates an edifice of identity that's externalized, that's outside yourself, that is now a permanent record for society. I think that that actually ends up encumbering people. I think it makes it harder for people to reinvent themselves, to transform, to change, to redeem themselves, because we've removed the ability to forget. And by doing that, we've removed the ability to forgive. And we've done so even for the most insignificant minutiae of everybody's life. I'm so glad you brought up the notion of forgiveness or giving way, allowing other people to, to move forward. And Perhaps Heidegger would be helpful here. So you have this interesting concept in Heideggerian thought, which is that age is to time what place is to space, that it is a localized perception of distance rather than a sort of Newtonian Cartesian notion of, of a grid, a space as a grid. Yes. So it's not a grid space. It's more of a, you know, my house feels further away to me than my office from where I am just because I have to change a few times on public transport. But literally, as the crow flies, it's actually, it, it's closer to me. And the way we make up the resolution of the world around us really does affect how we move through that environment. With reputation, let's start here. Um, your reputation is not a choice. Um, it, it exists once two or more people agree on some piece of information about you that may or may not be true. With this notion of reputation, reputation can be thought of as a currency, something that we can invest in, but it's very hard to earn, but it can easily, easily be lost. Now, the radical transparency movement, and I'm thinking, you know, Zuckerberg et al., they want to say something like, look, this is going to happen. It's a fait accompli. We're always going to have this sort of permanent record of, of things. And, and what we need to do is respond with courage. And actually, we are going to just, it's, we're just going to get over it, apparently, <laughs> according to, and I think Christopher Paul has mentioned it. He has that wonderful, wonderful quote where he says that anonymity is authenticity, that we have to be able to shake off who society decided we were and become something new. And that this, this anonymity, and remember, you, you can't be anonymous alone. So you can only really be anonymous once another group of people share the intention of, of being anonymous and are able to mix up 
well, we call it IPsec at the moment, IP security, because you are recognized on the internet by your IP address. And, and of course, what that has generated is two tiers of people, people that know how to obscure this information and, and, and the general public who, who don't. So when we weave out these sort of timelines and these narratives, and we've got all of these different personalities, these different trust accounts, as I call them, that we build up with people, we have to be conscious of the fact that as we do so, we are leaving open a future. When I act in this moment, I'm not as private as I think I am. Now, the word secret just means secrete. It just means information that moves slowly relative to the adjacent information around it. Whether or not someone goes through my IRC chat logs from 1997 will really depend on how much they care. Forgetfulness is such an important part of our day-to-day lives. If you don't forget, it's difficult to be in the moment if you're too busy remembering every single thing that ever happened. You can only have one thought at a time. So with forgetting, we get something like Chick Mahai's flow, that David Beckham doesn't have to believe in the football before he kicks it. He just kicks the damn thing. He doesn't have to remember every single thing he was taught. It's more like after lots and lots of rote learning and drill exercises, he is then able to go onto the pitch, rise to the occasion and own his captaincy of England. Right back, well, this was, you know, six or seven years ago now. He owned it until he made a very, very big mistake. I'm not a big fan of football, but I believe he stamped on another footballer. He was sent off. And at that moment, the community, his reputation just went through the floor. Despite the fact that he was a hero in many people's eyes, despite the fact that he could place a ball from one end of the pitch to the other without even looking up, right at the feet of the striker. At that moment, he made a critical error in his thinking. Actually, most catastrophes are as a result of critical errors of thinking. And he lost the captaincy. He lost the ownership in the eyes of the community. I think that there's a lot of general awareness. I think the general public are broadly aware that these changes are taking place. I just don't think there's enough deep, deep understanding of the future that we're sleepwalking our way into as a fake de complete. Oh, yes, sure. I'll upload all my pictures. I'll give you all my IP information, you know, IP address information. I'm going to tell you what products I'm buying. I'm going to tell you what I like in quotes. And I'm just going to give it to someone like Mark Zuckerberg, so that he can sell it to a marketing company, so that they can gather information. In psychology, you have this notion of reactance, yes, this is field of research, which is the study of how to make people react in certain ways. Well, look, if, you, if you're a psychologist, and I believe the UK generates something like 50,000 of these psychologists every year, they all go off and they work in marketing, right? Most of them don't go off into medicine, I think. They then go out, they look at all this data, and then they work out how to manipulate the decisions of the people in the marketplace. You're in a hologram. I think it was a Wall Street Journal headline once that was said, they, they build this castle to rip you off. And you don't know that you can leave because you can't see the walls, but the walls are there because your behavior is being shaped. Now, where this gets really, really sinister is the fact that you will often forget the things that you've done in the past not realizing the significance those actions may have had to someone else. But Facebook remembers everything that you did, not just on its platform, but anywhere you went with the API installed on on another website. So if, if another website has the Facebook API installed, it will also log your activity there too. And they can consolidate it in this mass database. They can hire behavioral economists and psychologists and algorithm developers to run software on top of your actions 
and start to make decisions and judgments. We're building a database of all of these people. And I think that's something that needs to be brought up into the public debate. That debate probably won't happen anytime soon. I think one of the interesting things about this is the idea of anonymity through crowd coverage. You talked about David Beckham, and David Beckham is a celebrity. And as a result, his statue within a crowd is grander, and he sticks out. And as a result, he receives concentrated scrutiny by thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And most people feel like unless they are a celebrity, they will escape scrutiny simply by melting into the crowd. That assumes the societal construct of identity and reputation that is being witnessed by humans who have both limited memory in terms of forgiving and forgetting, but also limited attention span. What we're going to with the technological construct of identity is two things. We're, first of all, eliminating memory constraints. Nothing is ever forgotten. But at the same time, we're also creating systems that can focus attention on everyone all the time because they do not have attention deficit or attention mm -hmm. limits. This is the Gordon Stair of analytics, the big data analytics platforms that can deduce a lot about people. But more importantly for them, there is no distinction between celebrity and commoner. There is no hiding in the crowd because every single member of the crowd can be afforded the full focus and attention of the Gordon Stair. And that big data analytics machine can give everyone the spotlight of a celebrity the unflinching criticism and judgment of every action of a celebrity. And that's a really uncomfortable place for most people to be. And so the crowd is no longer a defense. Even worse, as you said, the science of making people behave in a certain way by stimulus and response, sciences and shaping their behavior is much more powerful than most people Belief. And I was reading a story the other day that I thought was hilarious. You know, most people believe that they are analytical actors who carefully evaluate <laughs> information and make decisions yeah. based on that. But the, the truth is that, you know, while we construct that narrative in our conscious minds, mostly ex post facto to justify what we just did, the vast majority of what we do is driven by stimulus response and reaction mechanics that are deeply embedded in our subconscious and, and are not really under our direct control. I was reading this beautiful story that illustrated this about B.F. Skinner, I guess the father of behavioral conditioning. You know, he was at a conference with Eric Fromm as a guest. He was objecting because Eric Fromm was really going after him, basically saying that the conditioning that you see in pigeons is not the same as in people, and a man is different, and he was essentially attacking P.F. Skinner's work and, and saying that humans cannot be conditioned in the same way that pigeons can be conditioned, and all of this was really just a whole deal of nothing. So as he was doing that, P.F. Skinner wrote a note 
passed it to the people next to him at the committee table. And he said, well, in his note, he said, watch Fromm's left hand. I'm going to shape a chopping motion. And he passed the note down to the other participants of the committee. And then he turned towards Fromm and turned in such a way that he could only see him from the corner of his eye. And every time his hand would go up, B.F. Skinner would turn and look at him. In the next action, Fromm moved his hand downwards in a chopping motion. B.F. Skinner would smile and nod. And within a few minutes, um, Fromm was chopping the air so vigorously that his wristwatch was almost falling off his hand. So, essentially, through this simple reward action, almost Pavlovian response mm. of focusing attention at the moment of stimulus and then rewarding the action of a downward motion with a nod and a smile, within a few moments, within a few minutes, in fact, uh, B.F. Skinner conditioned Fromm to start doing a chopping motion, which he wrote that he was going to do in advance. It's really funny because this is like a person who at the time is arguing that people can't be conditioned and is being conditioned himself on stage in front of an audience with prior notice. We're not that independent. We're not that analytical. And the narrative we construct in our consciousness that explains our actions as independent actors is a narrative. It's something we impose on our stimulus response activities in order to understand them as a conscious being and to explain them as a conscious being to ourselves more so than what is actually going on. So this is a really interesting conjunction of forces here. You have the witnessing that never forgets. You have the attention that never wavers and can focus on everyone in a crowd simultaneously. And then you feed that all into machines that can use that to form our response to stimulus. That aspect of identity is not the same as the social construct of identity that we're familiar with. It is a very different one. It is a very mechanistic, and in my opinion, dehumanizing form of identity. And the reason I think that's important to notice is because when we try to create global identity and reputation systems in these Bitcoin 2.0 blockchain-based technologies, with the assumption that just because we can assign everyone an identifier and use that to build reputation metrics, we should, we're missing a key point. We're missing that without the ability to have limited attention, limited memory, and limited action on the consequences of that attention and memory, what you create is this impersonal, dehumanized, totalitarian form of identity that is very, very different from what we understand as a culture. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. And I'm actually a fan of both B.F. Skinner and, and Eric Fromm. So I don't want to judge those two thinkers because... I don't think we're, we're going to move the discussion forward. They, they came a long time before we had this technology. Now, I think the problem, I spent a lot of time studying reputation systems a few years ago when I was researching. And one of the this sort of ideas came up of objectification, this idea that if you treat people as a means to an end rather than as an end in themselves, then they will start, that will actually in itself change their behavior. There is no reason why 
we have to build star rating systems on one to five. I'll give you a real world example. There is such a thing known as the J curve in five star Scala ratings that were used to be used by YouTube and they, and they dropped it because they realized it wasn't working. And that is because when someone is asked to rate a piece of content on a scale of one to five, most of the time they will either hit five or one or nothing at all. And so what you end up with is a mean average that looks very distorted. You can get a modal average, a modal average where you see what was the most popular one, and you will see people putting in five. But the fact is the vast majority of people don't um, tag very well because tagging is work. Yes, you're asking them to expend effort. They do not necessarily see the incentive for them. They see the incentive of the person that owns that database. I cannot stand this notion of rating one another and upvoting and downvoting of individuals because it's very reductionist and it doesn't really help me to describe a kind of experience I might have with someone just because someone else downvoted them. I am much more interested in rich media. I'm interested in videos. I'm interested in uh, long form content. I'm also a big fan of Twitter, but you see Twitter is atomic. And those atoms can be built up over time to give rise to a larger corpus or a larger body of work that I can make a judgment about. So in fact, at the moment, the kind of signals, and this all, this all relates to signaling theory and economics and, and evolutionary biology. And now, a good signal should be hard to make, impossible to fake. That essentially, what we're doing is we're not saying this biological organism over here that, that we may call Chris or Andreas um, is necessarily because of the past always going to do something in a deterministic way, like perhaps B.F. Skinner was alluding to in this example. I mean, that's a party trick that he pulled, um, but it doesn't always work because if it did and you had a supercomputer powerful enough, then this is like Maxwell's demon. Oh, it's, it's, it's similar to Maxwell's demon thought experiment in physics, where if you could create a supercomputer and it knew the histories of every single person in, in a particular confined space, would it know what they were going to do in the future? Would it be able to predict it? And the reason the answer isn't yes is because, of course, in order for it to know everything about that person's past, it would need another universe again just to store and retain all that information. Eventually, we are going to run out of resources. You, you brought up Gordon Stair. We, we just simply don't have the resources. And remember that governments, in, in my view, and I, I think yours as well, and Jeffrey Tucker talks about this, they have got a failing business model because in order to get elected, they have to keep promising low and low taxes. But then they get elected, they kick every problem down to the road to the next guy. That business model does not support an infinite capacity for storage of the past. I think eventually this is just going to break up and fragment. And what's important for me now is that we talk about this and we think very, very hard because there may not be another chance to shape the future that we're going into. If we are going to persist data on all of these different information silos, we need to think about the protocols that are in place when, when we do that. We need to think about the ethics, the, the forgetting, as you say, which is so vital. And we also need to think about forgiveness and how we treat one another. Does something that someone did in the past necessarily predict their future. And this is why I brought up Heidegger's age and time. The fact is that they may have moved on from where they were 10 years ago. They may not live there anymore, so to speak. That may be a prior age. Now, we don't know. We can't know. Only they can prove that with our actions over time. I need to to, to build up the trust with someone by making myself vulnerable. Okay, Snapchat. There you go. Perfect example. Snapchat brings out a feature 
that allows for their very teenage demographic to send pictures to each other, but limit the amount of time that the picture is exposed on the other person's screen. So I'll only show it for three seconds. And why do they do this? Because of sexting. This is a very, very popular pastime for teenagers. Why? Because when you're growing up, you're finding your independence. You need to be able to make yourself vulnerable to others. you, You want to scare yourself a little bit. And what Snapchat did very naively, in my opinion, is they put in a feature that they thought would be cool and great for their business model. They'd be able to sell out to Facebook for 22 billion or whatever it was. And they didn't think about screen capture or maybe they did, but they didn't care. And so then what happens is that those that are savvy enough and those that think of it just end up screen grabbing that photo. So you can entirely now undermine the entire reason for doing it in the first place. And that is a perfect example of why we need to think and, and consider this more. Unless you have, is it called a meeting room in computer science? A meeting mm-hmm. space, a point of, anyway, the, the general idea is point of presence, provable point of presence, which is what I proposed in the, in the World Citizenship Project, where I suggested that we use established commercial venues to prove that IP address by sending out a, a transaction on the blockchain. It'll have to be something like a hotel or something that's very, very rigid. You know, it's been there for a long time, such that no one would mind because, you know, commercial businesses want to advertise their location. You're not giving up the addresses of, of the people that are there, but that you would be able to prove a point of presence. Film companies do this. If they need you to read a script, they'll ask you to come to a meeting space. You'll sit in this room and be like a Faraday cage. You've got to leave your mobile outside. You're not allowed to have any recording equipment on you. And you go inside of what is essentially like a sound studio. A secure mm. compartmented information facility is what the military yeah. calls it, a skiff. So there it is. And I think we need to think about all of these tools. We need to put them all together and we need to sit down and work this out. And we don't leave until we've worked it out. Because at the moment, you've got all these entrepreneurs, you know, building all these social networking services. They're wrapping up these databases in very shiny wrappers but they're not really helping us to understand the technology that's underneath it. In the World Citizenship Project, I strongly, strongly advise against putting personal identifiable information in the blockchain. The only thing that goes in there at the moment is the digests, not the reference, not what the, the, the media content. And I, even with the media content, I've written at the top of the readme and at the bottom in the, in the notes section, I am saying you need to think before you just go ahead and give this. I even suggest to people that they, instead of using their faces as their likeness, they use their voice because you cannot choose to be seen. It's a symmetric thing. Either people see you or they don't. You can't choose it unless you start wearing a burqa or something. Whereas your voice is a voluntary act. So you choose whether or not to speak. And of course, remember that the passports themselves are used not so that you can enter a country, it's so that that country knows where to send you back to. This is something Ajahn brought up on the Git repo. He's like, actually, it's a cover your ass document. They're letting you in because then they know where to deport you to if you start causing trouble or if you get ill or something like this. And so it's important that we understand ethnos, origins, like where we come from, whether or not that origin is incidental or relevant in some way. Like I can leave my home, go to another culture and show that culture what I'm bringing with me and also at the same time absorb what is different about them. Eventually, I can return to my ethnos, my my origin, and I can be changed as a person and I can help almost like bees flying across the world, cross-pollinating all these different cultures. And these tools that we're talking about right now and the ethics of the use of those tools 
is going to define the next five years of dialogue. And we have to think about it very, very hard. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to spend Bitcoins right from your browser. Today's magic word is Logos. That's L-O-G-O-S. Logos. You've got until the 11th of November to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. And on that note, we've just finished rebalancing the listener rewards program. This reduces the effectiveness of reading individual articles and increases the value of magic words, mostly because there was too much of an opportunity to read new articles, and the articles last forever, whereas the magic word expires. So it's a more valuable expression of actual participation. We appreciate everyone playing the LTB coin game, and although it's definitely been successful in terms of increasing participation in listener numbers, I'm quite excited to get to this next phase in the new year. To this point, LTB coin has been a token you can receive, but there's little you can do with it, and none of it easy. Along with several others, and after months of planning, we founded a new company designed to solve this exact problem, create tools that allow any token to be made more valuable by its issuer in the variety of basic ways that, unless you're doing it manually right now, simply can't be done with tokens. I'll have more on this soon once there's something meaningful to talk about. In the meantime, let's get back to Andreas and Chris. You brought up another point that I found very interesting, which is the idea of rating individuals and providing reputation metrics. And this idea of measuring a quantity, quantifying Mm -hmm. an individual, measuring an identity, I find is rather interesting. I think it's a very interesting simplification. Even if you're doing it as a snapshot in time, And if you're doing it from the perspective of a single observer, and then you try to aggregate that information in some kind of statistical picture, five stars for Andreas today, three stars tomorrow, because he said something I didn't like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one star because he stole my cookie at the party. And so you're rating actions, behaviors and creating this composite reputation that is a statistical distillation of a human being in a one to five scale. To me, that is a terrifying concept. Mm. And part of the reason it's a terrifying concept, yet it's it's a very mechanistic form of identity, has to do with what we were discussing earlier, which is this idea of identity being dependent on context and being dependent on context as you present it to a different audience. So, you know, each of us have elements of identity. We have identities as a friend, we have identities as a parent or child to someone else, we have identities as a spouse or partner, we have identities as a professional, as an employee and employer, we have identities in our public speaking, we have different identities that we wear depending on where we are and who we're interacting with. These are not really different identities, they're just aspects segments of our identity that we expose to different audiences. And you could say our identity is a composite of all of these. Based on that, the assumption is that you can measure 
tag and distill that down to a specific metric. Well, here's another interesting thing. I look at identity as a fractal surface, meaning that depending on the resolution you look at, you reveal more features, self-similar features at a higher resolution. So people's identity is highly, highly fragmented. It's composed of all of these little snapshots of behavior and expression and context that mesh together to form an identity. And to measure a fractal is impossible because the size of a fractal, its outline, if you like, is infinite. That's the whole point of, that's mm-hmm. the definition of a fractal. So to give an example, if you take the island of Great Britain, the British Isles, you look at it on a map and at that scale and resolution, it has a specific size. You could take a ruler and you could measure it and you could come up with, based on the scale, an estimate for the coastline or at least the major coastline of the British Isles. And that picture would be incomplete. That measurement would be looking at a very specific resolution of that because coastlines are fractal. The very definition of a geographical space is a fractal. So if you then took a satellite image and measured it again, you'd come up with a slightly higher number because you would have more resolution, more nooks and crannies to measure. And then if you zoomed in on that and started resolving it to the resolution of uh, 10 feet, you'd get a higher number. And then if you resolved it to one foot, you'd get a higher number for the coastline. If you resolve it down to one inch, you'd get a higher number and you'd keep going. And in fact, you'd end up with an infinite sized coastline. Mm -hmm. Um, down to the atomic level, that cosine would still show features, and it would still show nooks and crannies. I think human identity is very much like that. There are nooks and crannies of of personality and identity that sometimes are never explored at that resolution. And certainly, we see ourselves as a kind of uh, rough resolution picture, as if you're zoomed out in Google Maps. You know, we have the overall feel for who we are, and people around us have an even more limited view of that. And then to try and measure that is ignoring its fractal nature. And that's even as a snapshot in time. That's not considering change, erosion, movement over time, the fact that personalities change, that actions modify. The assumptions that we make is that the, what the information that we're looking at, that quantification, is final. We assume that that person isn't going to go on and move and become malleable and be practical, as you say. But that is, in fact, a completely false assumption. Not only does the preponderance of evidence prove otherwise, I think there's no evidence at all, ever, that humans are immutable, even over Mm. short periods of time, or even predictable to that Mm. degree. So I found it very amusing the other day, we were discussing this. Brian Sovereign did a great presentation at Coins in the Kingdom talking about identity and reputation systems. And he was criticizing them in, in, I think, many of the same terms from the perspective of it, you know, trying to distill human behavior to a mechanistic, unforgiving, unforgetting view of the world at the same time, also trying to globalize that identity, which is another big mistake, taking it out of a local context and trying to create a one single global identity system that works for every culture which is really a fundamental misunderstanding of how human cultures behave. 
especially if you look at it from the perspective of Americans, that is an appealing perspective. But, you know, other cultures, the concept of identity is so different, so fundamentally different. Many human cultures don't have individual pronouns used as broadly as English does, because the concept of identity of an individual is is so much more diffuse. It's only looked at in the context of a bigger societal construct, a group. But even that reveals a cultural bias that is pretty systemic in these assumptions. So he mentioned a project that I thought was really ironic, which was a project of one of the Bitcoin 2.0 companies that was doing on identity, and they called the project Quixote. And I thought, here's a perfect example of an almost Freudian slip revealing the underlying fallacy of this argument. Quixote, Don Quixote, is a fictional character by Michael Cervantes, a Spanish author, who writes about this Spanish nobleman, Don Quixote, who basically is reading all of these novels on chivalry. One day, loses it, loses the plot, ends up roaming the countryside, recruiting an aide, and then trying to recreate acts of chivalry. And so I thought it was really fascinating. You've got a reputation system named after a fictional character, but what that fictional character tells us, what is the story of this fictional character? The story of this fictional character is of a Spanish nobleman who had a stellar reputation, had a five-star rating. He was a Spanish nobleman who was respected, a landowner. He was a successful member of a specific social and economic class who was recognized by his peers, etc., etc. And that five-star rating encompassed all of that person's previous experience and behavior, if you like. And then Don Quixote suffers what can only be described as a psychotic break, complete disassociative incident where he loses the ability to discern between fact and fiction, a psychotic break with reality, and then goes on a rampage across the Spanish countryside, endangering both himself, his aide, and all bystanders, doing acts that he sees as chivalrous, but in fact, vandalism and assault and culminate in a frontal attack on a fixed structure when he goes tilting at windmills. Hmm. And, and this is almost a suicidal rampage, if you like. He goes postal, he goes suicidal across the Spanish countryside. Now, at that point, you would assume that those observing him would give him a rating of one star. So, (laughs) the very example, the name given to this reputation system is actually that of someone who subverts the very notion of a reputation system, because all of the prior experiences of that personality up to that moment in time are positive, and then a psychotic break occurs. The person that emerges from that psychotic break is not the same identity, and therefore has a completely different reputation rating. and yet. If those who encountered Don Quixote rampaging through the countryside looked at his reputation rating, they'd see five stars, because it couldn't incorporate this new information fast enough to change the average. And by the time he's done his biggest damage and gone on his suicidal rampage, the average has probably not moved, even if you counted the new 
ratings, maybe it went down to a 4.5. Because he felt trapped. Someone that society decided he was, and he wanted to break out. Because as you say, it's a fractal phenomenon, you know, know, identity. And I can totally understand. I've been in that same situation myself when I was in the film industry. Everyone just thought I was an IT guy. And I'm like, hang on a minute, I'm so much more than this. And that's why I had to leave because I was just being typecast and I was, I, I was wanting to break out. I think what a lot of these reputation systems that you're talking about, I don't know the details of, of Quixote, but some of the other proposals that I've seen are far too objective and are far too reductionist yeah, uh, on, on the human condition. What we should be tagging are the objects that the human creates rather than the human themselves. And I think the future, I don't know the full resolution of this idea yet, but it, it's coming to me slowly is that everyone has their own ability to produce their own algorithms. So actually, you know, just like the, the, the Neolithic period, <clears throat> scarcity of space gave rise to an abundance of time. And then, then it all, you know, sort of became a scam as to see, you know, if you could uh, get someone else to do the work for you, you could put your feet up and, and do what you wanted. And I think where we're going next is the importing of knowledge from other people. That's what the internet affords. So I would like to, to import the knowledge of a computer scientist or someone that writes algorithms. And I want to be able to have the independent capacity to do my own types of searches and, and not have my attention guided by a table of contents like Google, who will steer at my behavior by selectively giving me you know, certain search results that they believe um, is in my interest and, of course, in the interests of their clients, the advertisers and, and, and the NSA. So I think eventually, you know, like we've seen with all technology, yes, technology gives rise to discovery. It's a platform from which we can make discoveries. But then that technology eventually becomes commoditized and it starts to become more like a toy or something like this, you know, where now anyone has access to that know-how. I can actually start to say, right, rather than judging Andreas on something like who he is, because I don't think you can tag that, you can't reduce that. I can look at the individual artifacts, the art that you, Andreas, have produced over your life. And I can form my own decision and perhaps even have the opportunity to look at things and remember things in a different way. To remember things that with the fullness of time, I can look back at a, you know, a mistake that was made by one of my friends. And I can say, actually, now that I have the bigger picture, I can see what led to that mistake. I am not perfect either. None of us are. Some people are very good at pretending like they are and putting on a false pretense, but we're all fundamentally flawed. I don't want to see a world where the people that are best at putting on the presentation are the ones that are successful. I want to get to a world where authenticity is valued the most. And I think we're very good at recognizing authenticity. I think we know it when we see it. We've seen a few scams recently on Twitter, Bitcoin scams. You have this committee of liars that get together and allow these Twitter accounts to mature over the course of, say, a year. And then they start tweeting each other to give the illusion that they are real people. But what they're doing, of course, is they're taking images of people off of private networks like Facebook, and then they're just flipping them in Photoshop so that you can't search for them on Google. And then they're creating this false narrative. And then they're saying, oh, I do over-the-counter Bitcoin trades, you know, minimum $10,000, because all he needs to do is con one person once, and then he can run away, he can ditch that identity and move on. We have this tension between needing a referent Remember what the internet does fundamentally, yes? It allows for existence to emerge without a stable spatial referent. I think it's a mistake to start forcing the internet to do something that it doesn't want to do, that it wasn't built to do. But once we enter into this unstable, volatile memory space, we do need a way of tethering, almost like the way the Bitcoin blockchain does, to the Genesis block. We need an anchor. 
we need a, a narrative where I can prove the sequence of events throughout that narrative are rock solid. And then we need to say, well, how do we identify the most salient entries on that database? If someone makes the claim that they've done five successful trades with over the counter, let's not trust a Twitter report. <laughs> let's not trust that somebody on Twitter said that this person was okay, because that's not a stable referent. What I need is I need proof. I need proof that that trade happened at that time. And that's, I think, where we should focus our efforts and not be, you know, particularly in this day and age, come on, well, how can it be that two people born 50 miles away from each other, one has a lifetime of opportunity and freedom, the other is at the mercy of a tyrant, just because there was something called a border between them. That can't be right. And I think that it's, it's not that we shouldn't think about ethnos from a geocentric position. I'm not saying that, that geography is, is, is bad by any means. Um, but I don't think, like with the passport services that we have at the moment, you are an entry in the government database. Your birth certificate is a bond. It's a security that they use to borrow money. Yeah. Cause they will use your birth certificate to borrow money and they will use you as the security. So you are a line item in a centralized database by the government. And I think that just needs to be completely dissolved. That needs to be broke. At the very least, government needs some competition from groups of people that identify as being a community who are able to say, actually, I want these tools now. And I want to be able to do that. And I think once you get to that stage, and once you can get people really understanding the depths of this and, and how it works fundamentally, then I think you have the beginning of something that is much more fruitful, much more productive. Brian Sovereign made a very good point in his presentation, talking about the context, the geographical context of these developments, because following through with this utopian and idealistic view that technology can solve social problems is dangerous. And I don't mm. want to take the Luddite position that says that technology can never solve social problems, because in fact it does. But again, you've got to understand the limitations of that. And one of the main limitations in many cases is the culture works on a localized basis, whereas technology increasingly works on a globalized basis, and the two don't mesh very well. Elements of identity which are highly localized, that depend on a context of a local community, are not easily globalized because mm. the scale of global technology doesn't match the scale of human society, human community, and the ability to understand reputation and things like that. You know, that was, I think, a very interesting point. The danger here is that in attempting to solve these very real social problems that impact people's lives because the lack of reputation, the lack of connection with community around you is just as dangerous as the over-reliance on artificial ratings and metrics. You know, at the same time, we just have to be careful about how we approach these problems because what we're doing is we're trying to tweak and re-engineer things that are not just old in terms of human culture, but arguably, in many cases, are informed by pre-human culture, are representative of mammalian and primate behavior patterns that predate even the rise of humanity. We all have behaviors that we can see in primates, we can see in other mammals. Nurturing community, society are things that are not unique to the human species and predated us. And so we're tweaking with some of the very basic makeup of our species on a scale that is massive. 
So that's why we need to be careful. This was a really wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. And、uh, I look forward to our next philosophical discussion on issues far and wide and not always related to Bitcoin, but always very interesting. Thanks for joining me today. It's been a real privilege. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to episode 160 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Chris Ellis and Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.